This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. I was head designer with people under me and I didn't, I, I think I was throwing up for the first six months because we were, we were doing some major, major properties and so for the first six months I barely said a word but I just took like lots of notes and then I would kind of study at night so I studied interior design to degree level in the evening and then during the day I pretended to be an interior designer. From Living Etc magazine about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pip McCormack and on the show today how Abigail Ahern learned to follow her instincts to establish a global retail and interior design business, creating her own paint and accessories lines, writing books, running design courses and shipping all over the world, becoming profitable only when she stopped worrying about what everyone else might think. The first time Abigail Ahern told me she liked dark walls was around the end of the last decade, when light grey was what everyone did their living room walls in, and muted palettes were everywhere. Her use of downpipe by Farrah and Ball to slick across entire spaces in her shop and home felt both revolutionary and exciting, ushering in a new era, new aesthetic and new mood. Her wildly popular books, her sell-out design school and her busy bricks and mortar outlets had seen her become a firmament in the design scene someone whose own unique style set the agenda so firmly that it's hard to remember what a trailblazer she once was. As her new book, Everything, A Maximalist Style Guide, was published last week, it's a good time to look back and see where it all began. A note before we start, we talk a little bit about Terence Conrad at the beginning of the episode, which we recorded a couple of weeks before he sadly died, in case you're wondering why we don't mention that when he crops up. Anyway, before this episode, Abby gave me five milestones from her career, which she thinks were key moments. And in explaining the stories behind them, she's going to tell us how she got to where she is today. Beginning with her very first job in the late, great Terence Conran's book department. I was at Terence Conran. I want to say for just over six years and I was on the picture desk and um, previous to that uh, when I kind of left school I worked for I was an editorial assistant for six months and hated it and then saw this job advertised in the Guardian for Terence Conran's publishing company as a picture research assistant and thought you know what I don't know youth I'm just going to go for it and go to this interview and I happened to buy this crazy coat and I got stuck in the swivel door in it because it was so buffoony and um, my boss-to-be was loved my coat so much he's like listen you've got such style you've got the job and I didn't even really do the interview it was literally nuts so I got this job as pitch researcher for Conran and obviously he published lots of interior books and I um, obviously as an assistant I would follow my boss around and we would commission photography from photographers, but also go to picture libraries all over Europe and find images that would go into his interior books. So I was, um, thankfully, uh, I was in the interiors section because there was also cooking and gardening, etc., etc. But I was generally put in the interior section and that kind of gave me 
my love of interiors. I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but I spent six years looking at amazing photographs of incredible houses all over the world. And then I got this opportunity to um, move to the States with my husband. And I thought it would be a good time to see if I could transition into interiors, which I'd researched for the last kind of six years. So that's really how the whole interior side began, I would say. It kind of honed my eye. Which is quite interesting because I don't think of your style as being particularly sort of Conran-esque, whereas I find that a lot of my influences come from my very early days, you know, the first sort of things that you soak up when you're really young and you're yeah. hungry for things. Do you see any sort of a Conran style in what No, but then I didn't have a style. I really didn't. So when I first started, so I got into interior design in a very bizarre way because I, I decided that I would go and uh, we were in America and I thought, I, might, I don't know if I want to be an interior designer. I might want to be, I think I'll just go and be an intern. And I had rocked up at one interview. I went to tons of interviews. And this one architectural company that had just set up, um, I'd taken in all these books where I'd found the pictures of, and they thought that I had designed all the houses. I mean, I don't even know how this happened. And then they gave me the job as head interior designer of their company. They were, they'd literally just launched. And I, they called me to say, the interview went great, Abby, and we'd like you to head up, you know, all those spaces you've designed are amazing. We'd like you to head up our interior design section. And I was 25 and I, was, I just had this split second to go, okay, fine, or okay, actually, I only found the pictures. So of course I went, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> um, and then I was head designer with people under me. And I didn't, I, I think I was throwing up the first six months because we were, we were doing some major, major properties. And it was in the Midwest and uh, clients were generally living around the motor city like Detroit and all around there so they had lots of glass houses overlooking lakes and everything and so for the first six months I barely said a word but I just took like lots of notes and then I would kind of study at night so I studied interior design to degree level in the evening and then during the day I pretended to be an interior designer which is why I were I think I'm known for doing things kind of differently and decorating a bit differently and that's purely because I had no idea what the rules were I didn't know anything I just flung myself into this job had $100,000 per room in this first client's house. And my God, it was just a whirlwind of craziness in those early years. So I had to really think on my feet. And that's how I so I didn't have a style. And in those days, I had to follow the house style, which was Macintosh Forest. That was an architectural company. And it was kind of very kind of modernist 50s, quite considered and quite beautiful. But I was learning. I just it was an amazing opportunity. And I didn't really have a signature style. It wasn't until I kind of uh, completed my degree and I had a lot more confidence in who I was that I then started pushing things my own self. But up until that point, no, I didn't have a style. I only got that as I got a little bit older. And did you manage to convince your colleagues that you knew what you were doing? Yes. I'm a good blagger. I mean, I don't know. I would never do it now. And I don't even know why I did it. And I, I sort of make fun of it. But the first year was the most stressful year ever because I had a responsibility. I knew I had a good eye. I knew I could run around to any design center. And I, I was being flown to Chicago and LA to find all these. I can find things really that I knew. I just didn't know the technicalities of how to measure a room and how to work out square footage and all of this kind of technical stuff that you kind of have to know. So I blagged it a lot. And I would constantly say let me get back to you on that one I think that's what I said a hundred times a day let me just get back to you on that uh, I'm just going to come back to you on that so it was there was a lot of blagging but um it was I mean I told them after about two years I said to Doug who's sadly no longer with us uh Doug 
I just wanted to tell you, you know, you gave me that job as head interior designer. I'd actually hadn't interior design before. And he's like, darling, don't worry about it. You work for Terence Conran. You brought so many clients. It was fine. So oh, really? <laughs> kind of this weird thing. But you know what? It really um, propelled me into, tr- I think where interiors tend to go a bit wrong sometimes is that people overthink things and I had no time to overthink things I had to trust my gut and it stood me in really good stead for my business because I was suddenly propelled into a job I had no idea about in another country where I didn't know where any design centers were any antique rugs were any painting you know like I knew nothing from the get-go so I had to really trust my intuition and that has done me really well I would say from all of those years ago I've just learned and every time I don't trust it things go really wrong so I've just learned through age and experience that I just have to trust kind of my inner voice but for I was there for just under four years and I pretty much mirrored their house style I didn't have my own style it wasn't really until I came back to the UK that I started thinking about what my style was a good few years after even coming back I would say so why did you come back to the UK? Well, simply, I don't. we wouldn't have, I don't think, if the contract hadn't run out for Graham. So it was on a contract and we literally had no choice. And I remember sobbing going over there because I was giving up everything, so I thought. And then I was sobbing coming back to the UK. So we had to come back due to the contract and blah, blah, blah. And lots of our friends then tried to go back and have subsequently gone back and worked for other people but I think I felt because by that stage I had quite a lot of confidence with interiors I really resonated with European more eclectic interiors I would say so I knew not that I knew that I was going to open a store at that point or do more interior design at that point or anything that happened subsequently I knew that it was a good feel it was a good place to come back so once I kind of got over the you know the stress of coming back I actually settled into it quite easily now I feel and this I think this is a bit of a stereotype but I also feel there's truth in it I feel that Americans are a bit more open to ambition and open to you know reaching for anything and the the possibility can be yours than British people are was it a bit of a shock when you came back with all this like you know momentum saying I can do this and I've done this and I can do that to suddenly come back to a British sensibility again it was hard because the thing that I loved about America is that there is so much positivity to think that you can I don't know run for president or change the world and it's slightly different here um so I did find that quite hard I mean I'm so I've forgotten about it actually now you just brought it up but initially yeah like when I was in America I suppose because I had you know I'd landed that job so easily which I didn't even expect to have and I I ended up working on some incredible installations and then I had all these ideas when you come back and I remember thinking um I don't know if I want to go into interior design. I don't know if I want to go into styling, but there was a lot of closed doors. It took me quite a long time, I would say, to kind of really find my groove. And that's the thing that I love about the States. They, there's just this kind of, there's this never say never and never think that you can't do something attitude, which um, has kind of stayed with me quite a lot, I would think. And so what did you start doing? Because presumably the shop wasn't something you just opened straight away. I came back and I decided, I'd done interior design. And I thought, you know what, I just, I want it, I want a little bit, I just want it a little bit easier. I think I'll go into styling. So uh, obviously I had a portfolio of all the houses that I'd worked on. And then I found myself an agent over here and then styled for publications, your publication, uh, PR, advertising for a good about three years I would say um and then 
I constantly found it difficult to find, I see things in my head of products and ideas and rooms and I found it quite hard to find it in stores so I kind of said to Graham one day listen you know I'm I've kind of done styling I feel that I could open a store and put into that store everything that I want to style in all these shoots that I've been doing for three or four years and that's how it began really so we got a tiny little tiny shop in uh, Islington in Cross Street um, which was so bijou, you couldn't get more than sort of three people in it. But it was a really good early day start into because obviously, I wasn't trained in a business. I mean, I have I had at the po- at that time, no business sense. It was just like, I want to open a shop, it's going to be great without knowing any of the stresses that retail presents to you on a daily basis. That was the beginning. So I left Starling, opened this tiny little store. And, uh, and then yeah, gradually and gradually and gradually. I mean, that was like 16 years ago, 15 years ago, it's taken a while, but it's getting bigger and bigger. And the momentum is getting bigger and bigger. And so it's morphed into what it is today. How did you I mean, those stresses you mentioned about opening a shop, I mean, they, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. And for somebody who comes from a creative background, you know, brains are not always wired to be able to deal with spreadsheets and, you know, budgets and hiring and those sorts of things. I mean, how did you get into that mindset? How did you learn? What to the, do? I think um, the first five years I didn't. And the first five years we weren't successful. And it got to the point where um, although the store looked beautiful, I was pretty much manning it myself with my sister seven days a week. We just sat down and went, you know, it's kind of turnover smurnover because if you're working all the hours under the sun and you're just breaking even, what actually is the point? And initially, you know, it was so exciting to have a store and fill it with beautiful things and not think about cost of sales and not think about where you're buying from and all of that thing. It was, it's wrong to say I saw it as a hobby because it so wasn't a hobby because I worked so hard, but I didn't put enough emphasis into the business side. And I got to the point where I said to Jem, you know, this just can't go on. We're working crazily. And at the end of the year, you know, we're paying ourselves a fairly basic salary. At the end of the year, there's no profitability. And we really have to start changing it around. And I think at that point uh, was a real turning curve for us because up until that point, although everything in the store I loved, I had more of a generic head on, like I was trying to appeal to too many people. And I got to the point thinking, you know, if I want this business to work, I have to think that I'm the customer. I can't second guess who my customer will be. So it was kind of a make or break thing. Our lease was coming up. And I'm like, we're just, I think that we should now, and at that point, we were only buying from third party. We should just buy what we love and hope other people love it too. And then they did. And sales started changing. Because what had you been selling prior to that? I mean, everything, everything that we sold was lovely. It was just a little safe. So, for example, it might be a really simple, beautiful white bowl, which you can find in a thousand other places. Or it might be, uh, let's say, I don't know, just a cushion in velvet. It didn't really, it was lovely. But I think actually the thing that really changed it around is when we decided to paint the store dark and then all of the kind of the generic products just didn't feel that they linked enough with the narrative of the store and it started to get a little bit more eclectic and a little bit more innovative and so we kind of had this massive shift which was really through us just working too hard and just being fed up and Jem got pregnant and said like I'm taking time off obviously to have her baby and that was a real learning curve to think hold on you know she's now got a daughter my niece and we've got to make this business really successful because we can't just 
work the hours that we're working and not really get enough out of it financially. I then I'd given the business side to other people because I hated Excel spreadsheets and I didn't want to get involved with it. And I then decided if I really wanted to get to the bottom of my business, I had to find out where it was all going wrong or not going wrong, but why it wasn't making enough money. And then that was just because our margins weren't correct. You know, you always mark things up and we'd had really low margins and our sell through wasn't correct. And there was no KPIs and all of this kind of stuff that you have to know as a business person, we just kind of ignored and naively slung ourselves in. On the plus point, I would say, it gave us the opportunity to really drill into our customers um, because it was great when we changed it and only bought from the heart what we would want in our home to see that our customers really resonated with that and we were getting better and better. So that took to have to not think about would that person over there like it and that person over there like it and just literally us be our own customers was amazing. And then I would say the next milestone was when there was a recession and all the third party suppliers that we were buying from got really generic. And I'd just come away from generic and then I was going to trade shows and everything was the same as last season, but just painted in a different color or quite boring. And I just said to Jem, we're going to have to produce it ourselves. We've got to get, we've got to go to Asia. And we see things in our head, her and I, a lot. And we were sketching things out. And why can't we have a light like this and a chair like this? And, and so that was kind of the real, that was a real turning curve when we started producing our own I want to sort of take a, a, a rewind back to when you um, when you painted the store yeah. and you painted it black and suddenly your customer you painted it dark sorry yeah. and suddenly your customer base was changing a little bit and you credit that store as being a very good sort of calling card for you I think it yes. was a great launch pad for you but how was word getting out about you at that time I think um, so when I painted the store dark um and I painted it in downpipe from Farrow and Ball um we got a lot more customers it looked incredibly cozy and then someone from Farrow and Ball told me because I painted my house also in the same color and it had got photographed for a magazine which then kind of went around the world and then Farrow and Ball told me that I'd changed I'd changed the sales in that color and I was like, interesting. Now I need to do my own paint range. <laughs> so uh, then I'm like, hmm, that's really interesting. So I then said to Graham, right, we've changed Farrell and Bull sales. We're now going to do our own paint range. Because I I've, I had all these colors in my head that I could never find that I wanted to do. So we started paint. So we did that, found a factory, uh, which we're still how, with. How do, you, how do you just find a factory to make paint? That's not an easy thing to do, surely. There's not that many factories in the UK, actually. And so I just I just basically Google it and find that and found some brands um that I really kind of respected and that used I knew that um like the quality of uh Farrow and Ball's paints were really beautiful so I knew that I didn't want to do the synthetic paint which narrowed it narrowed it down and I wanted paints that used pigments from the earth so they had all these nuances of color and then came across uh Craig and Rose and then called them and said how about it and they're like well I think it could be quite interesting let's just start off with like seven paints and so uh we did seven paints and then I started painting the store in it in different walls lots of different colors and then people like where's this from and who's this paint color and then they started buying all our paints um which was amazing and then meanwhile the house gets photographed and then it goes to more and more magazines all over the world and it's on 
social and everything. And so suddenly I'm kind of known as kind of converting people to the dark side, which was really subconscious. I mean, it was never a plan. I just loved how it made me feel. I remember the first time I ever interviewed you. I think it was 2010, maybe 2009. Yeah. And we were talking about dark walls. And I said to you, what's the appeal of dark walls? And you said, everything just looks expensive when it's placed in front of a dark wall. It does. And at that time, we were coming out of a major recession yeah. around the world. And I think the appeal of looking expensive and feeling expensive, even if something wasn't, yeah. was so alluring. Yeah. I think you really hit a sort of zeitgeist there with what you were doing. Yeah. And... I wonder if that was a sort of conscious decision or was that just no, yourself? nothing has been, con- everything has been incredibly organic. I knew that when I painted a wall a certain colour, what it did to my spirits. I mean, it lifted them. And I could see the people coming in, what it did to them. And at the time, you know, no one had really kind of done everything dark because it's still... Not so much now, but then it was perceived as being incredibly radical. But when you take out the scary side of it and you just put a beautiful vase against it, it just literally pops and looks amazing. And so the paint thing, I would say, was really transformative to how we were perceived in the press. So then from that, I got a lot of press, which then uh, led to my first book. Um, which then led to a licensing range with Debenhams, which then led to a TV program. So that was just literally through, I think, because with retail and particularly interior stores, they're quite generic. And I wasn't coming at it from a generic way. I didn't have, although I obviously had to, I was starting to hunker into the business side of the biz. I didn't have a commercial, my commercial head on when I designed that shop. I didn't want aisles. I didn't want bright lights. I wanted it to read like a house. And that just got us a lot of attention because most people at that time weren't really designing in retail spaces like that. So I think that made a huge difference also. I just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you a little bit about Harlequin, the high fashion fabric and wallpaper brand that takes inspiration for texture, colour and patterns from the catwalk straight into your home. Jump into Harlequin's book of little treasures, a magical collection of fabric and wallpaper new for 2020. To find out more, follow Harlequin on Instagram at harlequinfw for inspiration and links to their innovative digital design book. Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. And was the store starting to get profitable now? I mean, had you presumably you'd had to invest quite a lot to make the paint collection? Or? Yeah, I mean, the, the paint collection, no, not really, because the paint collection at that time was made to order. So we didn't carry stocks. So people were waiting about 10 days to two weeks. Um, but then when we, yeah, we had to invest some money. Um, and I think that was the scary part, because at that point, you know, when we, when I kind of sat down with and said to Jem, listen, we can't carry on just, you know, not really earning enough money and breaking even. We've got to kind of go down this route where we're only buying what we love. Uh, that was quite scary because obviously, you know, I don't know how many times in those early days I remortgaged my house, but remortgage, remortgage, remortgage to put more in. And then um, and then it really started paying off as soon as I stopped thinking, what will everybody else like? which used to worry me, the whole business started changing radically. And was that employing the same sort of confidence that you had used back in America where you were just like, right, I'm just going to just throw myself into this and make it work? Yeah, totally. It was totally, I'm just going to throw myself into it to make it work. And, you know, painting that store dark, which just didn't, doesn't even sound that radical. I think because there was nowhere quite like it, it just got a lot of traction in the press. And then people started 
reading about it and then calling up for collaborations and books and TV deals and all this sort of thing, which just kind of happened out of the blue, purely because my house looked slightly different to everybody else's out there, as did my shop. You know, that really gives you the confidence to trust your gut and never second guess again and then put things into production or buy things that you totally love. But then in 2012, you launched your dog lights, which I think are potentially one of your most sort of immediately recognisable pieces today still. Yes. Um, I remember the first time I saw them in Paris at Maison and just sort of falling in love with immediately with how sort of quirky and characterful they were. But again, like manufacturing them, you know, I can't imagine that's an easy process either. How did that come about? That was an easy manufacturing process compared to now. So I had one dog who's died, but two dogs. um, And they used to go to school uh, a couple of times a week. And I would pick the sounds, the sounds so bonkers, but I would pick them up at their school gates at four o'clock and they would trundle out with their other doggy friends. And they came out one day and I'm like, I don't even know how I thought of it, but I thought, my God, you dogs would make such cool lights. So um, I came home and I said to Graham, I think we should do these dog lights because Maud and her friends, they're so cool and they've got this kind of attitude and I think I can turn it into a light. So I sketched something up and obviously knew nothing about manufacturing but knew I wanted them to be ceramic so went to Stoke-on-Trent uh, went to the potteries went to a number of factories and then convinced this tiny little factory in Stoke to produce these dog lights for us found a shade maker in Paris so the dog lights were quite masculine and quite uptight and then there was this real friction with this frou-frou little silk taffeta shade from Paris and at the time our first batch I think it was 30 pieces per light there were four pieces um, and we took them uh, to Maison and they did incredibly well I mean Lane Crawford bought into them and people and Japanese stores and it was like wow and we didn't really I mean it was so naive because I didn't really realize how successful they would be and this little Stoke factory and this shade maker in Paris who made every single one of them just couldn't keep up with the demand and all our price points were just not profitable and we hadn't factored in the whole stand and the wholesale and la da 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 but we started with those yeah those really quirky lights so you found international manufacturers after that I think yeah we did so then after the dog lights which we had for a number of years it was our kind of first foray into wholesale that kind of gave us a little bit more confidence about producing our own things because they did incredibly well but if you know anything about wholesale you cannot produce just four things you have to have more in your arsenal um and then uh the next kind of really the most radical change of the business um in all its kind of journey i would say is literally the faux botanicals and the fact that we were buying from a third party recession hit all got really boring jem kept saying i can't find this i can't find this i want this wilted mossy branch with brown bits on can't find it so then that's when we were like okay we're going to asia and it took us about a year to convince one factory at that time to do it for us because everything was so in China everything is very shiny and bright and they don't like dead things because all of our botanicals are hand painted and we wanted dead thing dead patches painted onto the branches which drove them mad and were constantly telling that would never sell blah 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 so we did the tiniest order well I mean for, for us it was a tiny order 
uh, it was a container, a 20 foot container. And I said to Jem, this is going to take us like three years to sell in the store because, you know, there's no, there's no way we're ever going to sell this. But we kind of believed in ourselves, put it in the store and it just went bananas. And we designed the uh, faux botanicals to look like a, a flower shop. So people would come in and think they were real. And then this got tons of traction. I mean, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow stumbled upon it and wrote about it. And then we got asked to do a concession in Shanghai. Uh, where we set up a flower shop and then Heels asked us to set up a flower shop and it just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that was a real kind of turning point because I think it, and again, it was never planned. It was this organic thing that we just thought that we could do better naively <laughs> than what was out there. We didn't think about the challenges and the fact that, you know, we have to constantly um constantly go and quality check things con because everything is hand painted uh, constantly constantly be out there constantly send them branches and inspiration make sure they keep to lead times there's all this kind of boring side of wholesale that you don't really see that I very rarely talk about that that you have to kind of be aware of but that was our biggest kind of jolt to the business because so many other stores then wanted to get involved with it and suddenly, I'm assuming you must be employing quite a large number of people because you've got, you know, there's the store in heels and you, you know, you've got all these different things going on. Are you running a big team at this point? Yeah, I mean, we're a tight, we're a really tight team. So everybody thinks that we're bigger than we are. But, you know, we have a wholesale arm. So we have a couple of people working in wholesale. We have our sales team. We have a whole managed warehouse. And then there's Gemini and about five other people kind of backing it all up. So, I mean, I think because... From our point of view, from Gemini's point of view, like I never want anyone else to do the buying and the designing. It's her and I, and that's it. I never want anyone else to do the quality controlling. It's her and I, and that's it. So uh, there's a lot of the team that are, you know, helping facilitate that, obviously. Uh, but the core of it, the DNA of it, the design of it, and the brainstorming of it, and where we go forward is literally her and I basically. And are you still kind of learning as you go along or have you got a business advisor at this point? No, totally learning. And so many things. I mean, the thing that I've learned about business, like somebody, I can't remember who it was who told me, who basically said that in business every day, there's always going to be problems. Like there's always going to be challenges. Not You can't even see half of them you just have to kind of embrace it and you you get better at it and you get more savvy at it but there's always I think I thought that the bigger that we would get the easier it would be and I would say it's actually the reverse the more complicated it is because now we're managing a lot of containers coming out of the far east which are then having to be divvied up all over the world and la 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 and it is quite it, it does you it does fry your head so, you know, at the moment we're working on autumn, winter 21 and then spring, summer 22 is kind of threading in because some other, uh, some other kind of big players are getting involved or who want to see our botanicals in advance. And so our, it, we're quite fried. But I have to say, although hours are incredibly long, I am very obsessed with interiors. And if I wasn't, I don't think that I would be able to do the hours that we do because they are yeah. long. Because you started, I mean, I read an interview where you said you start with your emails at 5am before I do. 
I've always been an early bird, actually. Even in the States, I was an early bird. Um, but uh, because um, a lot of our work is in Asia and a lot of our clients are in Australia, it just means that for four hours before anybody else comes on board in my day, I can get so much done. So it's kind of really key, those little four hours in the morning. Um, and I just kind of feel really set up. And I wanted to talk about your design school, because what year did you launch that in? Do you remember? I think my design school was, I I actually did the first one in my house seven years ago. And what's interesting to me about that is that everything else that you did in your business is about sort of expansion outwards and, you know, uh, having different products and different ranges and different outlets and, and, you know, different things around the world. But your design school relies very much on you and being, you know, it's, it's your, it takes up your time specifically that you can't outsource it to a member of the team because people want to come and learn from you. Mm. Was there think business strategy behind that or was it just something you really wanted to do god no no business strategy behind it i i did it because um whenever i was in the store people would constantly see me in the store and come in and ask me similar questions and so i just happened to say to jem i'm going to launch a design class in my house um for one weekend and it's going to be kind of breaking the decorating rules and how to get a cool pad. And she's like, oh, I don't think anyone will come up. And I'm like, I'm just going to try it. So we launched it and it literally took our breath away because this one woman flew first class from Australia to come to the design class for the weekend in my house. And people had come from over the world and then suddenly I said to Jem look I don't really I can't take more than 16 people um 50 people had signed up to do this design class so it's like wow this is bonkers and so um so that then meant that uh because it was so popular every month on a Saturday once a month I would hold a design class in my house and people would come from all over the UK from all over the world and listen to me kind of spout about interiors and I never really thought that I would enjoy teaching because I'd just done it as a one-off thing there's so many people in the shop asking me things I'm like listen I'm going to do a design class come to my house I can give you all my tips and then it's kind of morphed into this thing but teaching I mean I get so much out of it because how interiors make me feel in my house which is just it's kind of it lifts my spirits it makes me feel cocooned and so much happier and to see them getting that out of it just gives me the biggest adrenaline buzz so it's kind of really impacted into our whole DNA of the business because although obviously we're a store and we're a retailer I also feel that we're kind of we're storytellers and we're educators and we want to give people tips on how to make things more amazing and lots of people kind of like big wiggy people have said to me I don't know why you give so much away. You're always on Instagram giving away all the tips and tricks and secret addresses. And I'm like, because I want to inspire people because at the end of the day, having a really cool pad has got nothing to do with where you're located in the world and how much money you have in the world. It's just having the insider knowledge that with a can of paint or with a few little accessories, you can turn a little vignette around or a big room around. And the feedback that I get from everybody doing the class is so amazing that it's one of the most joyous things I've done. So although everyone gets a lot out of it, I also personally 
get so much out of it because they send me images of their spaces. Someone said she feels stronger and prouder and she's changed her career because it's given her the confidence. And I just, everybody that does it, whether it's the online one and not, there's not any in the house now because of COVID, just get, I just love what they get out of it. It just gives me so much joy. And also it's not, I don't have to think about Excel spreadsheets and the problems. And, you know, it's for me, I can just, get back to the core of what I love which is interiors there's no one telling me that you know a factory's had a flood and all your stock is ruined or a distributor's gone out of business and dumped quarter of a million pounds on you which is all the things that have kind of happened to us it's just teaching a group of people some really amazing tips of how to change their space around and seeing them get really excited and that's what I love so I know that your uh, courses have gone online obviously because of COVID how has the pandemic affected your business well, uh, the online class has been busier than ever. So we used to just have it at a set time, three times a year, but now it's kind of open all the time just because so many people joined. But for us, COVID has been pretty incredible, um, I think, because, you know, interiors has always kind of paid second fiddle to fashion and beauty. And suddenly we're all locked in our houses and we're becoming a lot more critical about our space, whether that's a spare room, a tiny room, wherever you're working from, we're all kind of really examining our spaces. And so there's been a big kind of emphasis on our home. And we want our home to kind of make us feel cozy and hunker us down and cocoon us. And so therefore, it's been really amazing. I mean, it's been hard work and it's been crazy at times. And there's been tears because it's like been like 15 hour days and la 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 and trying to deal with all the wholesale side remotely and everything. But um, it's it's been incredible. And it's given us a real opportunity that we're now able to put a lot more of our own label into production um, and have a lot more of our own voice. So um, I, I feel incredibly grateful when so many people have had a really terrible time of it well abby i have to ask have you ever had a master plan and if you have how close are you to it at the moment never pip there's no master plan i'm not surprised (laughs) (laughs) there's literally no master plan i know that everybody wants i I mean i had a cfo once um he doesn't work for us anymore. He's, he said to me, what's your exit strategy? You've got to have an exit strategy. You've got to get it to such an amount in so many years and then you've got to sell it. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to sell it in so many years. I don't want to get, I mean, obviously, yes, I want it to be profitable and I want it to do well, but I don't just want to sell it after. It's too much in my blood. You know, it is too much. Gem and I have just kind of put our soul into it. And obviously I need it to be commercial and profitable and all the rest of it. But there isn't this big strategy. I think. My plan has changed from when I began it. In the, in the early days, uh, God, right in the early days, 15 years ago, I sort of nonchalantly said, I want a store in every corner of the world. I certainly don't want that anymore. <laughs> um, uh, but I do feel, because it's such an integral part of my our DNA, um, that we just keep doing what we're doing. And I think the biggest opportunity that we can have is just doing a lot more of our own label and putting our own voice on products, continually making them look unique and different to what's out there. And I think hopefully that will stand us in pretty good stead. But there's no get it to a certain amount, then sell it and then go and open another business. I mean, occasionally, you know, I'll get quite moany and go, oh, I just want a little cafe in Australia by the beach. But I mean, that's kind of like, that's rare. And we're going to move on to the little home truths portion of the episode now, which is the quick fire round. Yep. So, Abby, what was the last deco update you did at home? 
the last deco update. Oh, my bedroom. Uh, so basically, I, I, it's been the same paint color forever, and I didn't want to repaint it. So because uh, I love it, but I thought it needs a bit of a refresh. So um, I just changed all the bedding and the throws, and it feels like a whole new space. What's inspiring you most in the design world at the moment? Gosh, I would say for me, it it's really hard because there's so many things that really inspire me. I mean, from a design point of view, I'm constantly obsessed, and this is going to sound really kind of weird, um, with really murky, sludgy, bottom-of-the-lake type colours. So I'm constantly going to forests and looking and peering in lakes and taking pictures for colour palettes for the next paint collection, which we're sort of working on at the moment. Um, and nature inspires a huge amount of what I do I mean I've always got my phone on me taking pictures but it's always like color palettes I'm really obsessed with but I've always loved that about you and and, and it doesn't sound weird at all because you you know I know that murky things always have always <laughs> appealed to you and I know that what I what, one of the things I lo always loved about you is how like some people go out to nature and be inspired by the bright blue of the sky <laughs> The yellow of the sun. <laughs> I'm taking pictures of mud going, oh my God, I love the brown in that muddy puddle. Yep, that's me. <laughs> if you could be on holiday anywhere at the moment, where would it be? Oh God, I so want to go on holiday at the moment. Um, there is this incredible hotel, um, which I love, which I was supposed to be going to, but I had to cancel um, in the south of France, 30 minutes outside of Nice called Colombe And it's full. It's the most incredible hotel in the world. It's very understated. So it's not trendy in a Soho house type way, but it's uh, Matisse and Picasso and Calder used to paint and sculpt for their supper. And it is the most transformative place that you can ever go to. So I'd go to Colombe in uh, St. Paul um, I know you're a keen cook, so what's your signature dish? Oh, at the moment, lemongrass, tofu, fish cakes. Mm. I'm uh, quite obsessed with Australia, um, and I love their simple but very fresh ingredients. And Donna Hay is uh, someone that I've kind of been buying her books for years, and all of her books, you kind of can knock them out of the park in about 15, 20 minutes, and she does these amazing tofu fish cakes with sesame seeds on them. They're just yum. Now, you've got a new book coming out imminently. Can you give us a, a quick sum up of what it's going to be about? Yeah, I mean, it launches October 1 and um, it's all to do with maximalism. And it's kind of changing the perception that maximalism is just about shoving a whole load of stuff in your space and it looks really cluttered and that's maximalist. It's, it's kind of maximalism, but with a very edited edge so um it's called maximism comes out october one and it's just showing you how you can have more more is more but in order to make it work and not feel claustrophobic or cluttered or over the top there's some principles that you kind of have to follow and it drills into all of those tips and tricks so lastly where can people find you on instagram abigail Hearn is where they can find me on instagram i'm over there um Every day. I'm trying to do videos every single day. And lots of people think I have a team who answer all the questions that people um, send in to me. And they don't. It's just me. I try and answer it throughout my uh, kind of crazy day. But I love my Instagram community because I think that when you have this community of people who are really passionate about interiors, as much as I give to them, they give to me. So um, I'm very, very, very obsessed with Insta. Well, I feel exhausted just listening to how much you do. So I'm going to let you go now because I can only imagine how busy the rest of your day is. Thank you so much for your time. It was really nice to hear you talk. Thank you, Pip. And thank you for listening. 
We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime, don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc. UK and me on at Pitt McCormack. See you next time. This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour.